Welcome to the Green Matters podcast, where we curate the conversations around decarbonisation, sustainability and renewables. We bring together experts from all areas of the green marketplace, including technology, leadership, R&D, finance, investment and governance or government intervention. The podcast aims to create a space to both promote and challenge ideas, share visions for the future and discuss how the world will change over the coming years. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by John Salazar, founder and president at Gazelle Windpower, a business founded to accelerate the transition to renewable energies by introducing the next generation of advanced offshore wind platforms. We're also joined by my colleague, Paul McGilvery, the legal and commercial officer at Decarbonisation Investment Group, United Capital. Firstly, welcome to both of you to Green Matters, a new podcast by United Capital. Thanks for joining us. And to get us started, John, could you please tell us a bit more about yourself and Gazelle and what you do? Thanks a lot, Fraser, Paul, for having me here at your show today. Uh, it's a great pleasure. Um, uh, sure, uh, I'm John Salazar, founder of Gazelle Wind Power. Gazelle is among the top technology providers and project developers for floating offshore wind. At Gazelle, we are introducing the next generation of floating offshore wind platforms. And uh, please allow me to give some context because now uh, we can uh, more and more read uh, in media, in the news about uh, floating wind, about enabling access uh, to deep uh, waters. And, uh, perhaps we can start uh, putting this context, this, this frame. What is this please. exactly? So first of all, in order to uh, meet the, the global needs for carbon reduction. Um, there are entities such as uh, GWEC Market Intelligence, IRENA, that are uh, targeting uh, over 2,000 gigawatt of floating wind, of offshore wind, by 2050. And this is in order to stay in track uh, with uh, this scenario of 1.5 degrees of global warming uh, during this century. Now, uh, it's, it's very difficult to reach uh, this type of volumes coming, for example, from 35 gigawatt of offshore wind in 2020 uh, to this uh, vast amount. It's, it's, it's a huge gap and it's very, very difficult uh, to do this only with onshore or with, with fixed bottom. You need to get into what is called uh, deep sea waters. And deep sea waters is, it means basically going beyond 60 meters in depth from the surface level of the sea to the bottom. Uh, going beyond that depth. could be one kilometer further from the coast. It could be 100 kilometers further from the coast. It could be even even more. When you go on deep sea water, something, something very special happens, uh, which is uh, the wind is stronger, more constant, less intermittent, leading to higher capacity factors. Over 63% of uh, wind resources globally are on, on what we call uh, deep sea waters. So that's why um, floating offshore wind uh, is the next frontier. And uh, you will start listening more and more in the next in the next years and mostly in the next decades. So we have another chance if we want to address these this this type of goals. Brilliant thanks John. and so from um I'm relatively new to um to the kind of wind power stuff. So if you just want to explain obviously you have to 
bring the energy back from wherever the, the turbine happens to be. So with, with either onshore or, um, or with fixed bed platforms, that process of transporting the energy back to, to a, a, a plant must be easier. If, can you explain the process of bringing that back from deep sea? Sure. sure. So um, let's start with, with onshore wind, which most most of um, people is familiarized. I remember when I was when I was younger uh, traveling in Europe. I remember these very long trucks carrying the nacelles. Um, a few weeks ago, I was I was in the UK. I was uh, using the the great uh, railroad uh, network that the UK has, and you could see a lot of this. So, most of the people is, is familiarized with onshore, onshore wind turbines. Now, what is happening in, in some places is the land or the, the spaces for onshore wind, um, they're running out of those permits, those spaces. Also, they had a visual impact. And don't get me wrong, onshore wind is a story of success in markets like Europe, although it's been, it's been a painful story. It took time. Uh, to, to reach utility scale, um, large deployments up to where we are today, uh, which uh, no, it, it, in some places it, it's, it's uh, cheaper uh, to generate electricity using onshore rather than a combined cycle power plant. You can be at four or five cents per kilowatt hour. But that led the market to fix bottom, to use the resources uh, outside, uh, to, to use resources offshore. And that was the first, let's call it the first stage of offshore, which is FIX. So these are solutions. Um, you can Google search uh, monopiles or jackets that are near the coast, uh, yeah. uh, below what we were mentioning before, deep sea waters. So these normally these solutions are, are very close. They require heavy installations, uh, which uh, damage the seabed. They still have visual impact. You can still see these from, from from the coast and some projects have been stopped for example there in scotland uh, in france um, so that hasn't really um, although it's it's growing and growing uh, i read today a news that in belgium 80 percent of the electricity generated uh, last year 80 percent eight eight percent came from offshore wind uh, at some point it will happen the same as happened with onshore wind which is the best landmarks, the best sites will be taken too. So we need to look, we need to look uh, further offshore. And for that, generally you need a floating platform. And now imagine, imagine a 30 foot building. This is when the thing gets exciting, at least, at, at least for me. Imagine a skyscraper that you need to put in, in the middle of the sea with very rough, very rough waters, depending on the sea, but let's, let's call it the North Sea. And you need to keep these machines stable and floating. Because if the wind turbines start, uh, if they sway too much, if they tilt too much, let's, let's call it uh, more than eight degrees of pitch, the wind turbine will cease. So you have then uh, a big engineering challenge, uh, which is to keep a 200 meters high wind turbine. No? Let's call it that, that 30 foot uh, uh, building. Uh, floating and in a way that is stable and that produces the electricity that, that is transported then to a substation and connected to the grid, uh, which goes to, to, the, to the mainland. Although there are solutions, and we can get more into this, um, there are solutions being explored to be coupled uh, with, uh, with energy storage, with hydrogen, 
I'm sure we can get um, more down to that during, during our discussion today. Thanks for that, John. It's um, it's a hugely exciting prospect, and I suppose from what most people who aren't involved in the industry, most people when they when they hear about wind turbines, it's normally someone moaning about them being onshore or in shallow waters. And um, obviously, famously, Donald Trump had a a big legal challenge in Scotland against a proposed wind um, farm off the coast of Aberdeen beside his golf course, um, which I think he lost that um, that legal challenge. But this this provides a solution to that, that engineers have obviously had to work on to say, well, we understand that there's a limited space onshore. Um, and we know people don't really like to look at these things, so let's find the solution to it. So it's hugely exciting. And how long have you been working on this this type of technology then? Gazelle Wind Power is the result of over 13 years of research and development. So this, the, the, the R&D component and the innovation component started a long time ago um, with um, well, started by, by a genius, uh, Dr. Antonio Garcia, a champion of mathematic Olympics, gold medalist, um, engineer that led the Spanish uh, team in the America's Cup sailing competition, doctor in aerodynamics. Well, he, um, he, de he detected when he was working for um, other European Commission projects um, a gap in the market, but it was, it was too soon. The market was not yet uh, ready. Um, this person uh, was a mentor to me. Uh, he inspired me to become an engineer when I was young. I was an engineer in another life. Now it feels like like it was uh, back in another life. Um, but I've been following the industry for for such a long time, and now the the, the time is right now for several reasons. Um, the industrial project of the Selwyn Power started in 2020, and now um, we are considered to be uh, among those top technology providers. Uh, mainly because of three reasons. The first one is the potential bankability of our solution. And this is very important, not just for floating offshore wind, but when we look uh, today at, at the different technologies that are required to um, really have that 100% renewables ecosystem, uh, each, of, each of these uh, have their own challenges to lower the levelized cost of electricity. Um, but the solution we are introducing to the market is something disruptive, is, is high tech. It's been specifically designed for floating offshore wind, and uh, it's uh, very different from the other uh, solutions that you can look out there. Uh, normally, um, they are um, inspired by oil and gas uh, because we are the first ones in separating the flotability and the stability. As we mentioned before, you need to keep these uh, wind turbines uh, floating. By that, we use a hull, and, uh, which is made of steel. And uh, our mooring system, which is patented and is certified uh, by, by DMB, one of the main uh, classification society, is what provides the, the stability. So without digressing too much, uh, the potential bankability of our solution is what uh, makes us um, one of those key enablers for um, moving forward to this market. Working end-to-end -end, uh, with classification societies is very, very important. Bear in mind that the average floating offshore wind farm will require an investment that maybe between two, three billion dollars. It will employ over 2,000 people. It's a massive market. We're talking about, quoting DMB again, one of our key partners, we're talking about a market that 
uh, is projected to reach over 264 gigawatt by by 2050. Um, so it's a multi-trillion, multi-trillion dollar, multi-trillion euro uh, market. So that's very important. And last but not least, the the formidable consortium and, and team that we've put together uh, in conjunction with being one of the a few companies out there with uh, with, with a real project uh, going on. Right. Uh, we'll come back to your your kind of expert team and board because I know that you've you've pulled together a, a cracking board of people to to lead this. We're going to jump over to to Paul. And um, Paul, I've got a question. Um, John just mentioned there that you know, this is something that's been on the go for for thirteen years i think you said john um, and it was too soon in the earlier stages um do you think paul that kind of public perception and buy-in including from the government and things like that is key in all of this that it has to be the right time for the demand from the kind of general public and um, to see i suppose government putting the, the funds required into into this space well, I completely um, I agree with what uh, John said in relation to the R and D element, and uh, certainly my my um, my background, you know, working at uh, University of St Andrews, University of Dundee, and working in the university space in general in research and development, I understand how long it takes sometimes to go through the R and D element to actually get a product that's viable. And certainly some of the work that you know I've I've done with uh, like so the European Marine Energy Centre EMEC and um, and with the University of St Andrews the Sea Mammal Research Unit SMRU, you know you you do get to understand how much research how much development goes in and what the environmental considerations are. And you know things like that. I mean, you touched on it earlier. Fraser about you know um, when the when the wind farms are too close to shore, you know they can be disrupting things like um, cetacean uh, breeding grounds, for example. So these all these things have to be considered as part of the research, the R and D that goes into these things. So, like I was saying uh, before uh, as well, Fraser, you know. It, it, when, when we, we get to the stage that we've passed all the R&D, we really know the product, we really know that it's viable, and we get that product out to the market, there is, a, um, there is a, an opportunity then for, um, for businesses to really push the agenda, the green agenda. And as, as you say, I think that a lot of that has to come from, you know, certainly the R&D element has to come from help from the government, things like grants and uh, loans and what have you, to get those products then ready for a marketable, um, to take it to the next stage for, for marketing, etc. But once you've went through that, I mean, 13 years, uh, John, it, it sounds a long time, but I bet it's flown in, in a lot of ways as well. But when, when you get to that stage, um, when you've got this product now that's, that's available, it's to go on to market, you know, and it's going to be used um, as a new power source, um, it, it really does add to the the the, the wind um, uh, the wind array, you know, because ultimately, like Fraser's saying as well, it's not onshore anymore. You you don't have perhaps those same considerations when you're you know next to cetacean breeding grounds, etc. You know, so it, it is. It's really an exciting time uh, to to have this type of product out there on the market. Thanks, Paul. John, I've got a couple of points. Last year, as as obviously we all know, COP26 was hosted in Scotland and in Glasgow, um, and certainly here we've we've felt a real shift change in the the focus and commitment placed onto decarbonisation. 
have have you as, as someone who doesn't live in Scotland, have you felt that same shift in commitment around the world and the, the places that, that you work and, and live? Um, and how do you see wind fitting into the kind of wider puzzle? Um, obviously, there's a couple of other solutions to um, to this climate change challenge. How do you see these pieces all fitting together? Well, I, I was there at COP26, um, so I could feel I could feel that uh, too, uh, Fraser. I was invited to uh, to a panel about floating offshore wind, and um, I, I could definitely feel uh, a change uh, in aware in awareness. And I believe some of the events we've lived. Uh, in the last in the last couple of years, uh, with all, uh, I will mention the the oil and the latest oil and gas uh, crisis, uh, COVID, making us reflect on the way we we want to live and leaving a legacy. Definitely, all that uh, has changed, and you could see a shift in perception from major oil and gas companies to global energy developers. Um, you could start to feel that that sense of urgency. I could feel also uh, a, a disconnection or some dots that still need to be connected. And um, I relate this to what you were just uh, saying now about the different energy systems that are required all together fitting as pieces in a puzzle in order to really achieve uh, net zero carbon goals and well, all the all the objectives uh, being set for for um, decarbonization and keeping this this 1.5 degree uh, global warming scenario. But to order to order uh, thoughts, uh, each of these technologies have their own challenges, uh, or each of these energy systems have their own challenges. Uh, although I truly believe we we need everything. We need we need, for example, here in the Middle East, um, the 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 potential for solar is, is vast. I don't even need to say this. Now, what happens when the sun goes down? Instead of using fossil fuels uh, to power to power these cities, um, wouldn't it be great to have uh, long duration energy storage, for example. Um, in other places where there is no sun, but there is wind, and you, you need to push uh, solutions like, like floating offshore wind, uh, for example, in places, places like, like Japan. For example, where you don't have uh, enough space for onshore, um, I'm, I'm simply making the point of uh, you need new technologies, and there must be a, a connection with that uh, stimulus you were mentioning before, Paul, and these new innovations being pushed into the market. And sometimes, uh, for example, there at, at COP26, I felt that disconnection. We were one of the few uh, startups um, that that were uh, that had a voice. Uh, in a key industry like like floating offshore wind, floating offshore wind, uh, there are some projections that say that by 2050 we'll be generating over 40% of the electricity in Europe. So it's a it's, it's a key it's a key enabling technology. Uh, getting back now to that, um, that 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 puzzle you were mentioning, Fraser, um, uh, you need wind, you need solar, you need long duration energy storage, um, ultimately uh, green hydrogen. So we, 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 we need everything if we are really transitioning towards that domain. And each of these energy systems, um, making this uh, at a high level, um, have three different challenges. Um, you have a technology, challenge, uh, a technology challenge first, and when you look at each of these, you will see that the, the technology is at different levels. 
um, taking from a patent uh, like we've done uh, to an industrial project uh, normally is very capex intensive is very capital intensive also so again that that stimulus particularly when um, we're talking about creating new industries is necessary so you need you have a technology challenge you have a supply chain challenge too because these are new industries and yeah. for example for floating wind one thing is to have a pilot project and a very very different thing is to uh, do these solutions for mass production for doing so for utility scale level of course they need to go hand in hand that's what we are doing at gsl we are doing platforms that are light that are modular that uh, can be manufactured for that utility scale level but all this it cannot happen without the the, the three challenges or the three components you know, technology supply chain and the third one is the 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 necessary regulatory framework and policy making to give certainty for the investments needed uh, to be fostered into into this uh, supply chain that stimulus we were mentioning before and we can look back in the days of onshore wind i mentioned before onshore wind was a successful story in europe but also painful uh, it's it's important for these new industries uh, once they start uh, to receive a stimulus so that gap uh, in the in the levelized cost of electricity uh, up to the point where it's profitable can be covered so we have enough uh, investors enough uh, companies willing to get in um, up to a point where the industry really picks it up by itself this is what happened in, in onshore wind and i trust that uh, for some of the new energy systems i've mentioned it doesn't take too long and we learn from the from the of course, from the successes, but also from the mistakes. So we can uh, really deploy affordable and clean energy uh, fast because we really need it. We really need to do so. Whether uh, whether climate change is man-made or is cyclical, or that there is no question uh, that uh, it's happening. And uh, we need to decarbonize uh, in order to, uh, to, 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 we were talking before about legacy, about what we want to live, how we want to live. Yeah, I, I like that that point you've made there, John. Actually, I don't I don't think it's a point that's made very often. That whether it's man-made or cyclical, I suppose it doesn't really matter. It's happening, and we need to find the solution to it, or else we face a bit of a stark future. Um, so let's all let's all get together. And I know, John, I mentioned I know you've put together a real expert heavyweight board. Um, to lead this, and um, and you focus quite a lot on the commercialization of the the technology. Um, I, I see you mentioned there. It's good to to have R and D to a point, but eventually it needs to be able to make money and be sustainable, etc. Um, so if you can just tell us a bit more about one the process of putting together your team, um, and a bit more about them and how they're going to drive Gazelle forward. Indeed, it's it's uh, very important to be um, surrounded, uh, particularly in a project of this dimension, uh, with people that has been there and has done it. I was the first investor in the Selwyn Power. I sold my other group of companies to provide the the precise capital, and now I'm very active into this. As I normally say I I, I work on this uh, 40 hours a day, eight days a week, and. Uh, we have we, we've been blessed and I'm very grateful to the to the type of people that are helping us to well to to guide this ship. We have the recently appointed CEO at Mitsubishi Power, Javier Cavada. Uh, this is 
former CEO at Barsila, uh, one of the largest, if not the largest marine systems company in the world, uh, former CEO at Highview Power, uh, one of the unicorns in energy storage there in the UK, London. We have Connie Hedegaard, former Minister of Energy uh, and Industry from Denmark, an ex-commissioner for climate action change. She's helping us with all these component of, of policy making, of, of navigating these um, this, um, regulatory waters in Europe. Uh, just to name another few, uh, David Mesonero, former CFO at Siemens Gamesa, former Head of Corporate Development at Iberdrola, helping us to the risk, all the financial component up to utility scale level, and our CEO, Pierre Paolo Mazza, a veteran uh, from, coming from GE, over 35 years experience in the industry, uh, over a billion dollars in sale. He's touched every single uh, part of, uh, of of the energy ecosystem, but nuclear. Uh, so you, you need um, you need people that um, has the experience that have lived what is to deploy uh, new energy systems and to enrich them and take them from from a technology uh, to a to a utility scale uh, mass production level. Yeah, I think. Um, Paul, from your your background in um, universities, you'll have a, an experience of knowledge share in particular, and the importance of knowledge share and and collaboration. And John, I, I I see what you've you've what you've done with the board. You've brought in the best minds from various different places, um, a real broad church of knowledge, and they will all bring their expertise, their connections um, and their own kind of collaborative networks that will allow you to speed up the process of, of getting this real to, to that real mass marketplace. Paul, what are some of the um, maybe some of the more issues that you've seen um, from likes of university spaces when it comes to knowledge sharing collaboration? Should we be sharing more in order to drive things faster? Without a doubt, there, there's no there, there's no doubt in my mind that we need to be um, quickening up the process, particularly of the R&D phases. Uh, I know it's, it's sometimes very difficult to do that, and there's a plethora of different reasons for it, but we, we really need to quicken up the process because where we are at right now, the way I see it, um, this personal, uh, personally, is, is that we are right at the start where almost like the industrial revolution you know we you know it's been quoted already it's been the green revolution we are at that moment in time where there's a lot of technologies and things that are there but again john made the point of you know that that interdisciplinary collaboration to join all the dots to make sure that that product while you can have a fantastic product an idea and, and it works well but if you don't have the infrastructure for that product there's going to be there's going to be an issue in relation to delivery so again it's you know you, you see that even in the 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 car sector right now you know you've, you've got some fantastic vehicles out there but the grid perhaps if everyone was to go electric overnight the grid probably wouldn't cope with the amount of electric that was required for all these vehicles plus um you know if, if everyone got air source heat pumps overnight for example all the electrical demand you're shifting from one set to another. So there's a lot of things that um, you need that interdisciplinary collaboration to join the dots and have the right teams in place to be able to get these products and innovations to the market that, you know, um, that again, it's going to benefit humanity in, in the long run. 
Uh, and and as, you, as you quite rightly say, uh, Fraser, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's man-made or otherwise, it is happening. So we, we need to, to make as best as we can of the situation. But one of the key elements there, I mean, uh, John touched on it earlier, you know, 13 years to bring this product, it's a long time to do that. And of course, you have to go through the, 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 the due process. But I don't think the world has that, um, that, uh, that, that time left to, 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 so that's why we need to fast track a lot of these uh, great innovations and great work. You know, it's a tremendous amount of work that's went into a lot of these, uh, these innovations over the piece. And, uh, you know, it's, it's good. It's an exciting time ahead. It is, absolutely. John, to add a, no, just, just to add a point uh, to what Paul is, was, was sharing with us now, um, just for, for a floating of wind project, uh, we need to put together um, between 15 and 20 companies. You need, you need manufacturers, uh, you need operations to do uh, the transportation, assembly, all the maintenance, the, the monitoring systems, uh, the engineering, the corrosion. The, you need to put together, you need to work collaboratively with, with um, 20 companies. And as, as you mentioned before, uh, we as investors, we, we don't invest in technology, we invest in, we invest in business models. So it took a lot of time to develop all that R&D, uh, but um, to take it to, to this industrial project, um, it, it's not taking us that long. Uh, we've been able in the, last, in the last 12 months to fast track the project. Uh, and it's very important. Uh, in, innovation will play a huge role in these decarbonization goals. And I truly believe startups uh, being able to put this type of R&D on fast track uh, need to play a need to play a key role. And then is when we connect all the ecosystems. Uh, you were mentioning universities. Uh, this need to be connected, ideally, uh, in, in this society where we're moving towards renewables. We need the universities connected with uh, the business world, uh, connected uh, with, with uh, employment, connected with uh, governments, providing that stimulus. Uh, that's where, um, ideally, uh, we should move in. And you mentioned also, um, it needs to be an interdis interdisciplinary uh, solution because uh, it's about innovation and it's also about balancing the grid and optimizing the grid, as we were mentioning before. We, we need all these uh, types of energy systems um, and you need to optimize the grid with digitization as well. Uh, that's something that we will start to see uh, more and more. As, as we look into the future in the next years and next decades, that's what we expect. Right, you, you've covered some of my next question. Um, so, but what do you think has to happen, um, both physically and in terms of you know governance, for us to meet those targets that have been set by the world leaders? And do you think the targets are achievable? or are they not ambitious enough? Focusing, focusing on, on wind, on floating wind, uh, which is my, my domain. Um, entities such as, such as uh, the Global Wind Energy Council, um, what they say is we should have, uh, as of today, 2% of the energy is generated by offshore wind. And if we want to achieve global decarbonization goals, this should be moving towards 25 to 30 percent by 2050. Uh, I mentioned before some figures you know, uh, targeting 2,000 gigawatts of, of, of offshore wind coming from 35 last last year. That's both issues. That's both issues. Although I 
I encourage those type of objectives because they serve as they, they stretch us. They stretch us. And if you talk to wind turbine manufacturers and, and you look at the current pipeline of wind turbines for the next decade, uh, they see that they are quite aggressive, quite aggressive. Um, but if, if we don't set uh, bodacious, um, aggressive goals, um, we, are, we are not going. We are not going to make it. Uh, we see that change in perception, and again, here depends on depends on its jurisdiction. For example, in Europe, you don't have a, a global energy uh, policy, so each each country is each jurisdiction is uh, seeking to solve the problem in a different in a, in a different manner. Uh, you need policies, you need regulatory frameworks that give certainty. That's that's the key word. Um, so the different supply chain actors that I was mentioning before, that just for a floating also wind project, you need you need 20 companies there. Um, you need that certainty. So all the actors are willing to move forward and make the necessary investments. Uh, so we can we can do massive deployments. We can do deployments that ultimately um, lower the level cost of electricity and make each of uh, these uh, energy system energy systems uh, competitive and, and affordable for everyone. Okay, so just just so I can kind of summarise what you said there, John. Do do you think that the the policies and the framework set by the government would give the financiers the necessary comfort? to really deploy their resources into this marketplace? That's a very important component indeed. It's a very important component. Uh, you have the technological challenge that with new innovations, with, with um, startups is being pushed now more and more. Uh, you need to have a supply chain. And in, in, in some industries, in most of these new industries, uh, the supply chain is not yet ready. And we need to create it all together, working uh, all, all the colleagues in the industry. And in order for that to happen without that component, uh, Fraser, of, um, of a regulatory framework that really enables this, uh, it's it, that's, that component is key. The same as the other two are key as well. We need the three, technology, supply chain, and the regulatory policies that enable uh, massive deployments. Brian, thanks for that and, and for everything, John, I'm appreciative of your time. I know you're a, a very, very busy person and you have other meetings to get to today. Um, so do, is there anything else that we've not already covered that, that you would like to add, John? We need to work all together. Um, sometimes I get the question asked, well, but are you sure, are you sure um, you should be focusing on wind and not in, not, not in solar, not in other energy system? Or do you think this is the, the the winning horse? And my answer is always the same. We we need everything. We need solar. We need floating offshore wind. We need green hydrogen. We need long duration energy storage, and we need to uh, create synergies. Um, we need to create, for example, um, a mix of hydrogen coupled with uh, floating offshore wind, or floating offshore wind with hydrogen. That in my eyes will be um, the ultimate solutions uh, that in the next three decades will enable us uh, to achieve the global decarbonisation goals. Brian, thanks very much, John um, of Gazelle Wind Power. Um, thanks, Paul, for joining me on Green Matters today. It's been a great conversation. And John, I, I appreciate how you gave us a lot of um, in-depth stuff, 
but you've also explained it really well. So um, for our listeners who um, aren't as experienced as obviously you are in the in the sector, they'll they'll get loads out of that. So I really really appreciate it. Very interesting conversation, um, and I'm sure, as I say, that our, our listeners are going to love that. Thanks to both of you, and all the best, John, with with Gazelle and Power and. Um, I know that certainly myself and Paul will be will be watching um, and keeping an eye on on how things progress and cheering you on and wanting um, wanting you to achieve all your goals. Thanks a lot for having me here, Fraser Paul. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, John. That brings us to the end of another episode of Green Matters, our podcast curating conversations in the green marketplace. Uh, Thanks very much to our special guests and huge thanks to our podcast sponsors, the Carling Group, the family investment office of Graham and Leanne Carling that invests in the consolidation and decarbonisation of the healthcare, real estate and building services sector. This podcast wouldn't happen without the very generous support. So thanks again and thanks for listening.